Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amex slash you know. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I made this show a COVID-19 free zone back in March 2020. I wanted a space where we could talk about science that didn't involve the pandemic. A kind of safe space, if you will. And so we've kept true to that. But now, as it seems like the pandemic is waning, at least in much of the world, that things are reopening, I'm wondering what lessons we've learned. And there are at least two people that were thinking about pandemics and quarantine well before 2020. Jeff Mena and Nicola Twilley, they've just come out with a book called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. You might know Nikki from her popular podcast, Gastropod, about the science and history of food. She's an incredible researcher, and this book is no exception. I didn't know there was so much to know about quarantine. Nicola Twilley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. You wrote a book about quarantine and you started researching it long before COVID. <laughs> what made you think about looking into the history of quarantine before the pandemic? Well, it's funny, actually. This story goes back a long way. Uh, my co-author and husband, Jeff Mano and I were in Australia. He was teaching there and I had just gone along to visit. And a friend of ours took us on a um, picnic on the north head of Sydney Harbor. So there's two sort of Sydney is on the on the southern opening of the uh, of of the the bay that is the harbor and and on the north head of that opening, we went for a picnic and there's a former quarantine station there that is now a hotel. And we thought, oh, interesting. Quarantine stations. Um, what was this thing that you had to have? Why don't you need it anymore? Interestingly enough, <laughs> and uh, you know, we Australia is a is a big place for quarantine. So then we thought, well, is it only Australia? And no, we looked around. There were lots of these former quarantine stations, and then we realized, oh, quarantine hasn't got gone anywhere at all. It just looks different. We don't have these big 
you know, um, quarantine stations in our harbors anymore for, you know, people aren't arriving by ship anymore, largely. And so we started tracing it. But you're totally right in that it did. I mean, even a lot of the experts we spoke to talked about quarantine as if it was a historical phenomenon. We went to the World Health Organization and they were like, oh, this is a historical book, right? I mean, we don't we have other things we can do nowadays. We don't really recommend mass quarantines. And yet we and and also many experts did think that quarantine was actually poised to make a huge comeback. And um, it's funny. I mean, we gave a talk in summer 2019 about our quarantine research in Moscow and at the end of it, we said, you and and everyone around you is going to be quarantined, is going to experience quarantine in your lifetimes. And we had no idea that um, later that year, you know, COVID-19 would emerge and we would all be experiencing it. But we did. But the book was originally, when we sold it, we sold it under the title, The Coming Quarantine. We, we changed that because the quarantine came. So now it's called Until Proven Safe. But we did believe it was going to make a comeback. It's so fascinating to me. And I I just want to sort of explore this a little bit because it seemed to me like, I mean, and maybe this is completely false, that the last major quarantine was like the 1918 flu, which is over 100 years ago. So what made you think that this was going to happen in our lifetimes? Well, I think that a lot of people thought that the age of infectious diseases had passed you know, we got antibiotics, we figured out a lot of cures for a lot of things. And we also sort of just in general deinstitutionalized. So we stopped building, you know, insane asylums and things like that. There was this sense that we didn't need places to isolate people. And then I guess the, the better way to phrase this is the microbes didn't stop evolving. So we do have antibiotics, but we also have antibiotic resistance. And, you know, the diseases that infect um, other animals were given more and more opportunities to jump species as we penetrated deeper into their, you know, these sort of wild areas of the earth. And then we also sped up uh, transport. So the rise of global travel and the ability to be anywhere in the world in just a few hours is something that's pretty new. So in the 50s and 60s, people thought we had defeated infectious diseases. And actually, we were really laying the groundwork for a comeback that eventually was going to happen. There are just enough, um, enough opportunities for viruses and other uh, diseases to sort of jump species. And then there are enough opportunities for those to travel. And always, you know, this is a, a battle that is as old as humans itself. I mean, we we are evolving and, and they are evolving. It's not like the threat had gone away and we had created great situations for the emergence and the spread of a new disease. And it's interesting to me, too, that like, I mean, is it just a fluke that it it turned out to be a new virus rather than a bacterium that was antibiotic resistant? I mean, I always imagine that if we were going to have a, a pandemic, it would be because we couldn't fight a bug with antibiotics, not that a new virus would come around. But maybe that was just totally misguided. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it probably was just a fluke. I mean, I think antibiotic resistance, I mean, is huge and growing problem. It's a, a slightly s- slower problem and it hasn't sort of 
taken the form of something that's transmissible yet. So you you get, say, like XDR-TB, which is extensively drug-resistant t- tuberculosis, and that can be transmitted by someone coughing on someone else, and those people are potential super spreaders. But that hasn't taken off yet in the same way. I think there's absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be a multidrug-resistant bacteria that is also highly transmissible and creates a global pandemic. Uh, but coronavirus got there first. And so you do you think that this is like, you know, I mean, I think we all now recognize that the chances of another pandemic happening on our lifetimes seems much higher than it did two years ago. But by the same token, you know, I think a lot of us are like, okay, well, that was it. And we got another hundred years. Like, where, where do you stand on the, the potential repeat of this situation, but, you know, with an entirely new disease? I hate to be the voice of doom, but I do think we are entering a new age of pandemics. And I think many, if not most, public health experts would agree. And so, yes, undoubtedly, we are going to experience another global pandemic. I I would put money on the fact that we're going to experience another global pandemic in our lifetimes. And that's kind of why we think our book is so important, because when you have these novel diseases for which we don't necessarily have a treatment and we don't necessarily have a vaccine at first and we don't have, you know, even necessarily a test at first and they're highly infectious, we don't know how they spread, quarantine can be the only tool we have. And yet, as we have seen, it is this very flawed tool in a lot of ways and it's very easily abused and prone to um, sort of injustice um, in its implementation. And so... Our book is an attempt to say, hey, we're going to use this again. We are, we do need quarantine, but we also need to redesign quarantine or really design it for the first time. It's never been designed as a lived experience. And we need to do that now while the mistakes of COVID-19 are fresh in our minds. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> just couldn't be more timely. I just kind of want to like high five you for being <laughs> so present because it is so, I mean, I, and, and when I first, you know, heard, oh, like Nicola wrote a book about quarantine. I thought, oh, she whipped that off. She's incredibly productive. Uh, she whipped that <laughs> off in a good six months. And then I got it. I read it. I was like, this, this, this was not a six month project. <laughs> like this is so beautifully researched. And so I want to start with like, the beginning. What is the difference between quarantine and isolation? And where did the word quarantine come from? Yeah. So this is a thing that almost everyone gets wrong. And actually, even, you know, we mix it up a little sometimes, but quarantine and isolation are not the same thing. And and the difference between them is part of what makes quarantine so interesting, because quarantine is about uncertainty. Um, if you know you have COVID-19 and you've been told to to isolate, you're isolating. You're known to be infectious. You're known to be dangerous to others. Quarantine is for when you might be dangerous. You have been around someone who has COVID-19. You've come back from a country where there's a lot of COVID-19 or, you know, any other disease. I don't know, maybe even, and this is an example of how it can be abused, but You're just of a particular uh, race or nationality that is assumed to be uh, a potential carrier of a disease. And so then what quarantine is, is, okay, we're going to separate you for a while. We're going to give you space and time, those two things, 
separate for an amount of time that it takes to see whether or not you are infectious, whether you're safe or um, a danger. That's why we called the book Until Proven Safe. That's the time you spend in quarantine. And that's what makes it so interesting because it is all about that uncertainty. And it's one of the few situations when the entire basis of sort of Anglo-Saxon legal thought is you're innocent until proven guilty. And quarantine is kind of like, well, you're kind of dangerous until proven safe. It's the exact opposite. And it and it's a really that's what makes it powerful. And that's what makes it dangerous. But you also asked where it was invented. And so that actually goes back to 1377, when the Black Death arrived in Europe from Asia and uh, the ports of the Adriatic, you know, they, they were doing a lot of trade with the East and they brought this terrifying new disease with them. And they didn't want to close the ports because they made a lot of money doing that trade, but they didn't want to all die from this terrifying new disease. And so they instituted quarantine as this idea that like, well, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can just sort of park all the the merchants that might be carrying this disease on an island somewhere and then see if if they are diseased or not. And if they're not, we carry on doing trade. And if they are, we send them away and it's all good. And it got its name. Originally, the amount of time was 30 days, but that was extended to 40 quite early on. They picked 40 not for any epidemiological reasons. That's not how long it takes for Black Death to emerge in a ship's crew. It was actually a sort of a kind of a religious justification you know, 40 days and nights. More is, biblical. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the idea of this is a generation. It's a it's an amount of time in which a thing could be purified or a thing could be revealed or a and and so quarantina in uh in a Venetian dialect is sort of the 40 days, the 40 day period, the you doing your 40, doing your quarantina. And that's where quarantine comes from. It's so interesting to hear that. And of course, like, you know, to us, it's 14 days seems like way too long. (laughs) Like, you know, I actually didn't go. I haven't gone home to Canada since uh, December of 2019 because the idea of spending 14 days by myself in a hotel room or God forbid by myself with two small children in a hotel room is just like I just can't wrap my head around it. No kidding. I'm exactly the same. I haven't gone to visit my parents in in the UK. And in the UK, it's a 10-day quarantine or or five if you uh, pay to test and release. But even five days, I'm like, oh, I don't have time because then my trip will be this long. And who wants to spend five days isolating? You know, anyway, I so yes, I feel you. It seemed to me really pretty arbitrary to begin with um, that the CDC would pick this or people would pick this particular time. But when you put it in context of like, it could have been 40 days, that seems like not a lot of time. So like, and and I think one of the things that, of course, makes quarantine so effective, although blunt in the beginning, is like when you don't know about a disease, you need to just stop the spread. And so like, how do people make this decision of how long quarantine should be? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, you'll notice that the time has sort of been refined a little. In some places, not in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, Well, also, one of the things that we saw again and again is there's what the science says quarantine should be. And then there's this aspect of quarantine that is about a political show. And that's been there since the start. The authorities in Dubrovnik, you know, wanted to show 
their um, citizens that they had this under control and they had a plan. So quarantine has always been political as well as medical. Technically, it should be uh, based on epidemiology, what you know about how long it takes for either the symptoms to emerge or for your test results to come back definitively, what you know about incubation periods. If you don't know, you have to, you know, make a guesstimate based on what you know about coronaviruses in general, for example. You err on the side of caution. People who work in in epidemiology and biosecurity in general are sort of a belt and braces approach people. So when in doubt, add some extra time. But um, but yeah, then it becomes a political tool as well on top of that. So and that and that is a big part of what happened during COVID-19. But that is not new at all. And, you know, it, your book is also not just about the history of quarantine, as you mentioned, but also the future. So do you like given your knowledge of the history of quarantine, given how political it is, given now what we've just lived through um, over the last year and a half of COVID-19, How do you think these decisions will be made in the future? Do you think people will be more or less likely to follow the epidemiologists versus the politicians? Oh, I wish I could be the voice of hope. Well, one thing I think is interesting about COVID-19 and communication about quarantine in general and all aspects of COVID-19 has been it's been a really good example of why science needs to be a lot better about communicating how it works as this gradual reduction of uncertainty rather than the answer, you know? Yeah. Chipping away as opposed to, yeah, providing with the solution. We are so, as scientists, we are so bad at making people feel confident because we don't, you know, we're, we're so reluctant to, to say definitively, but that's just how science works. That's how we are trained. And, that, and that's, that's how it is. But, you know, I think you're exactly right. In these kinds of situations, in some ways, I think the scientists have shot themselves in the foot by saying, you know, well, we're not sure. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's a really hard question to answer because I want to, and I want to talk about this next is like the extent to which our psychological approach to quarantine affects our ability to do it or or our willingness to do it, right? Totally. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit about sort of what you learned in terms of the psychology of quarantine. Like let's say you are the person that has been told that you need to quarantine. It's unclear whether or not you are, you know, you have the disease or that I mean that's as you mentioned, the difference between quarantine and isolation. Like I get isolation. That seems like it seems like easier to find the motivation to stay in one room if you know you have COVID-19 and there are people around you that you could infect. It's a lot harder <laughs> when you think you don't have it and you're just you know, wasting, as you said, your time in this hotel room. So can you tell us a little bit about the psychology there? Yeah, it's um, so interesting. First of all, I think one thing that's kind of interesting is quarantine, at least in modern days is a is a pretty lonely experience and that's how it's set up but one thing to that that I was surprised to discover is that initially when it was first conceived it was a much more communal experience and actually was sort of seen as a, this civic endeavor and you know neighborhoods would be quarantined together the lazarettos which is the uh, italian name for quarantine stations that became the general name for them during the black death those were considered one of the benevolent institutions of the city that notaries had to ask people in venice when they were making their will if they wanted to leave money to the lazaretto it was that you know it's like the orphanage the lazaretto you know 
These were the civic institutions. So it was a much more communal experience. It was a much more civic experience. And I think people found more meaning in it because of that, as opposed to being this isolated experience. And, and, you know, part of the difficulty of quarantine is that isolation. You mentioned it yourself, not wanting to sort of sit alone in a hotel room. And then the other issue is this sense of wasting your time, boredom. And we actually spoke to a boredom researcher about what you could do to make quarantine, you know, a better experience. One of the things that we sort of ended up joking is, you know, we need a Disney Imagineer for quarantine. It just hasn't been thought through as a lived experience because the epidemiologists, the public health officials, they just invoke it as a measure. It's what they call an NPI, a non-pharmaceutical intervention. They just say, okay, we're going to quarantine, and they know why they're doing it in terms of spread, in terms of the efficacy of sort of flattening the curve, et cetera. But they haven't thought about it as as an experience. And so, you know, it isn't designed that way. And, And one of the things the boredom researcher said, for example, is that, you know, she's done this study, which I think is an amazing study called the Jerk Study, which found that if people are bored and you give them something bad they can do, they will do it just to avoid boredom. But if people are bored and you give them something bad and something good, they would much rather do something good. And so thinking about what it is that we could do to make quarantine feel worthwhile, I think is really important and also really interesting. And we have a ton of smart people who think about experience design all the time and incentives and nudges and behavioral psychology. Let's let's do this. The other thing she said that I think is really interesting and that we saw, you know, in, in China, people weren't really given a choice about going into quarantine and they went into mass quarantines and they just did it. In the U.S., it turned into this question of individual liberty and blah, blah, blah. And I think one thing to sort of make quarantine more palatable, and we do this all the time with toddlers, is say you have a choice. Uh, You can quarantine at home on your own, or you can go to this mass quarantine. The Army, the U.S. Army did mass quarantines, for example, during COVID-19, very effective. And that would provide sort of, A, a sensation of choice, which is very important to Americans, and sort of a sense that they chose their own quarantine, which makes it more meaningful. And then also an option. You know, you can do it at home, but if it's hard for you to quarantine at home or you're worried about, you know, for a lot of people, it was in these multi-generational households, it was really hard to quarantine at home. So maybe then there's provision and you're with a bunch of other people and that that's maybe more meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because I feel like artist residencies are really coveted and they're really hard to get into, but no one wants to quarantine. And I'm like, what's the difference between all the differences you mentioned is that in artist residencies, you usually get to interact with other artists and that that scene is at a time where you can really be creative. But yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I think you're exactly right that if we can incentivize it in that way with a choice and just say like, hey, here's your artist residency, <laughs> you know, especially if the government can provide some meals or, you know, something like that. Like that, I think, would be a totally different story. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Nikki Twilley. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. That's the other thing about quarantine is actually at the federal level, one of the people, sort of one of the 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 heroes of the book is this guy called uh, Dr. Marty Citron. He's the head of the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine at the CDC. And he is a very thoughtful man who started in his job more than two decades ago, being convinced that quarantine was archaic, that it was so flawed, it could never sort of survive in the 21st century where we have individual rights, etc. And he came to believe that we really need it and we could make it fair. And he has spent, you know, the past 20 years revising the federal quarantine guidelines and putting that into, into law with the idea that if you're being asked to deprive yourself of something, this freedom of movement for the public good, then the public owes you a duty of care. And that's mandated under federal law now. The problem is that most quarantine powers lie at the state and local level. And, you know, as we saw in COVID-19, well, people don't mandate a quarantine. They say it's a lockdown. It's a shelter in place. It's a this, you know, it's a social distancing. And so then they are not required to think through the, all those other pieces that have been built into quarantine deliberately based on our understanding of what people need to do it. They need to understand that their family's going to be able to eat. Um, they're going to be able to eat, that their job is not going to be taken away, all of these kinds of things. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think in some ways, like, as you mentioned, we call it all these different things in part because quarantine does seem to have a, a negative connotation. And because it's sort of been politicized, then it's been, you know, yeah, it seems like, oh, you know, it's in some ways, instead of thinking like, I am not going to interact with you so that, you know, I can keep both of us safe. It was like, you know, it's like you have the cooties. So you go stand over there for four, 40 days. <laughs> totally. It needs a rebrand. I mean, there's even there's a horror movie that came out a, a couple of years ago that was just called Quarantine. I mean, quarantine is just dreadful and it it really does need a rebrand. So one way to rebrand it is to make it, um, you know, super exciting. And there's nothing more exciting than being an astronaut. Uh, and you spend a lot of your book talking about NASA. That was a great transition, um, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, how NASA does it and what we can learn from them. Yeah. So there's a few chapters in the book that sort of depart from human quarantine with the idea that we can learn about this concept by seeing how it operates in different contexts. So we have a, you know, a, a plant and animal agricultural quarantine chapter. We have a chapter that looks at actually the isolation of nuclear waste. And then my personal favorite, the planetary quarantine chapter. 
And that looks at, well, so there's a few different aspects of it. I'll start with astronauts because they're more fun. Astronauts have to quarantine before they go into space so that they don't bring any germs to space. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, it's very inconvenient to get sick in space. That's the main reason. And two, with the Apollo astronauts, there was a sense that like, well, if they do get sick in space, how do we know it's not moon germs uh, or something really scary? So they quarantine before they go, and it's done very differently depending on whether NASA does it or whether it happens at the at, in Baikonur at the the former Soviet sort of space agency there. That NASA is very efficient about it, and they uh, they have the astronauts on this very sort of military um, time schedule. And the Russian version it involves massages and long walks in nature. So. <laughs> Uh, the astronaut we spoke to is a, a, an Italian, Paolo Nespoli, and he um, was a big fan, actually, of quarantine uh, before going into space. He saw it as sort of this moment. Of course, it has a practical purpose, but for him, it was also sort of more of a metaphysical moment where he was able to sort of take a break from Earth before leaving it. So, I mean, you imagine going into, I, I've never been to space, but I have to imagine it's you know, even if you've done it before, it's kind of a, a leap every time and being able to sort of withdraw slightly and have these moments uh, sort of slightly detached from the rest of the world before you go into space could be kind of nice. So he was actually kind of a fan of quarantine, at least done Russian style. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, if it was, if it was 14 spa days strung together, I, I think we would all... We, we'd have some more takers, Yeah, right? yeah, no problem. Like, sign me up. Um there was another chapter too that I really enjoyed. Um, well, I guess it's maybe a couple chapters, but um, it's called Biology at the Border. Uh, and it starts out about how spiders are lonely, but some are social. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, and it's not just that we're getting diseases from them. What can we learn about insects and how quarantine might work? Well, so I thought this was completely fascinating. And again, I, I, I sort of feel stupid saying this, but it hadn't occurred to me. Of course, uh, humans are not the only social animals. We're also not the only architectural animals. And other species have also encountered this issue of, well, there are these infectious diseases, but um, if, you know, that, that spread, how can we reduce their spread while not impinging on our ability to gather food or do all the things that we need to do? So, of course, other species have, have encountered this problem. And actually, I feel a little less stupid when I realized that this is actually quite a new field in science. So I am not the only person who is slow to realize this. It seems like the this is only something that sort of science in general is, is waking up to relatively recently. But there's an entire field looking at this. And um, we spoke to Noah Pinter-Wallman, who's here in Los Angeles at UCLA, who studies these spiders, social spiders, and you know, they're making the same trade-offs that we are. Um, there are so many benefits that come from being social, from interacting. And yet there's this downside of the potential risk of dise disease. So how do they navigate that? How do they change their behavior? And also, how do they change their architecture? And actually, you know, she's testing a hypothesis right now that is sort of to do with, okay, when, when the environmental conditions are conducive to diseases, say it's particularly damp and, you know, a, a lot of diseases are spreading, do, you know, termites or ants build 
nests that have less connectivity. So they're just, they're not optimizing for connectivity, which is what they would do otherwise. And they're taking that slight hit to the efficiency of their nest and their food sharing and their whole process in order to reduce the spread of diseases. Um, so it, it, it's entirely possible. Um, termites, which I find amazing, in when there's an infectious disease going around, they eat all their young. And then <laughs> the way this was explained to me is, okay, this is like school closings, you know? Young, the young... <laughs> I mean, okay, take that with a pinch of salt. I'm not suggesting. (laughs) No, you know what? Like, yeah, instead of homeschooling, eating my young would have probably been a much better solution to the problem. I feel like there are some parents who is like, who by the end of a year of homeschooling are like, sure, I'll have them for dinner. Um, (laughs) But the idea being more that you're stopping the spread in this very particularly kind of spreadsome that's not a word, but you know what I mean, um, group. And termites do that too. So it's entirely possible that we could learn some lessons about quarantine, about uh, the design of our structures, and about, you know, the sort of behavioral changes based on insects. There's one uh, researcher who works a lot with Noah who has actually been drawing on how ants organize their society to um, advise companies on a sort of cohort model for returning to the office. So there's lessons to be learned there. And I thought it was so interesting. Some some social animals decide it's not worth the sacrifice. So for um, uh, young gorillas, um, especially childbearing um, female gorillas, they're much more likely to be attacked on their own. And so it, even if there is Ebola, which gorillas also can catch, they will actually stay in a group and risk catching the disease rather than a more likely death if they go off solo. So that idea of sort of weighing the risks is also something we do with quarantine and isolation. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of like, I think I remember reading something about how bees too, like if they 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 kind of, you know, they, they have these ways of um, showing where they've been. Um, and it made me wonder whether some of this also is like related to a, a, a behavior that evolved to reduce infection into the nest. Um, but. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and these are the experiments that are really only starting to be done right now. So it's, it's a totally fascinating field. Super interesting. So here we are, uh, hopefully towards the end of a pandemic. We're lucky enough that we have vaccines um, that are pr- really remarkably effective in a very short amount of time. And that seems to me like we, it was kind of it was just luck, right, that we were able to that, that the, the first set of vaccines almost were effective. What do you see, you know, if we have another pandemic, what do you think is the more likely situation in terms of how quarantine will be accepted or changed? Or can you tell me the future, Nicola? (laughs) Yes, actually, (laughs) but I charge. No, um, (laughs) no, uh, I, I mean, I do think you're right about the vaccines. I mean, obviously, obviously a great deal of scientific work that went into that making that luck. But I do know that every pandemic simulation I went to in the years leading up to this, we would go and and see these run through these these scenarios to see how the world would respond to to an outbreak. And every single time the experts would say 18 months minimum to a viable vaccine. And we got ours in under a year. So 
that piece is sort of incredible. Um, but yes, the future. I mean, I can give you the dystopian version of the future that I do actually believe is likely to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, um, lay it on, lay it on. <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm already so, eating my young, so. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. That that shouldn't be the poll quote here. I uh, <laughs> do not want to be known as the lady who's like, just eat your young. Um So, you know, what we're increasingly seeing is this idea that data and technology can help us design something like a precision quarantine or even an anticipatory quarantine. And so the idea that in a world where your Apple Watch knows various things and your Alexa can hear you cough and your Nest is hooked up to that, can all this data come together and say, mm, you're behaving in a way, maybe even sounding as with your cough, as if you might have COVID-19 or whatever the next pandemic is. And so maybe your your nest or whatever, your, your smart home system isn't going to let you out unless you have a, a doctor's appointment that you're going to. Maybe there's a way to make this sort of very data-driven and precise. And you see people doing this already, targeting people based on, you know, their Google searches or, you know, whether they're purchasing bleach and, you know, OJ, well, they must be sick. And so people are gathering that data and it's private institutions that are gathering that data. And so that idea of a sort of um, precision quarantine, I think is quite scary because that that data is being used to add up to a picture that we are not being given input on necessarily. As you you started to see it happen even, you know, in, in China, for example, this Alipay system was sort of adapted to, to turn into a, a quarantine passport. And people whose phones said that they had been in an area where there was infection found that they couldn't move around the city. Their phone wouldn't unlock, you know, subway turnstiles and things like that. So that kind of sort of uh, automated quarantine mode where your your data and the smart technology around you will, we will be implementing quarantine in a sort of anticipatory way. The Silicon Valley folks are salivating over it, obviously. Um, the people like Palantir who want to disrupt healthcare. Um, see a huge market opportunity and increasingly, you know, even national healthcare systems are outsourcing this to those kinds of companies. But I think there's a lot of problems with that, obviously. I mean, it's hard to even know where to start. So that is what we ended up thinking is likely to happen and also really needs to be um, stopped in its tracks. I mean, you know, it's one thing if if uh, if when you have those things, Alexa sends you a Russian masseuse and then locks you in. <laughs> but I don't think that's this is true. Happen. If if Alexa is going to just deliver gourmet food <laughs> yeah. and and you know, uh, good book, maybe take your young away with you, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, great. The whole thing. It could, <laughs> we're back at we're back at the spa retreat. I love it. But no, I mean, I do think these things sound really dystopian, and they can be. This is actually could be a great tool that we is our uh, an act of civic generosity, something that we do for the public good and get rewarded for accordingly. Let's design it that way. 
Yes. And this is why everyone should read your book. So Jeff and Nicola's book is called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Thank you so much for coming on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Amaster, and Charles Blyle. And also Heather Heise and Nina Kraus for recently becoming our patrons. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Riley Byrne. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. <laughs>